Welcome to TCN Talks. The goal of our podcast is 15 to 20 minutes of relevant, need-to-know information to help you in your role as a hospice, palliative care, and serious illness leader, and for the team at all levels of the organization. Our goal is concise and relevant information because brevity signals respect. And the bookends of our podcast are always something to make you think deeper about life, about our topic, or both. And now, here's Chris Como. Hello and welcome. Before we get started today, I want to thank our sponsor, Delta Care X. Delta Care X has been the title sponsor for our 2022 Teleos Collaborative Network Leadership Immersion Courses and also our TCN Talks podcast for 2022. Delta Care X is the premier vendor of Teleos Collaborative Network and provides pharmacy benefit management services that allow their clients to experience deep discounts, utilizing a preferred local network of pharmacies that can provide same-day delivery when necessary. So thanks to Delta Care X for all the great work that they do in our hospice industry. So our guest today is Dr. Cameron Muir. He is the Chief Innovation Officer for National Partnership for Healthcare and Hospice Innovation and the founder and principal of Cameron Muir Consulting, LLC. Welcome, Cameron. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you, Cameron. We've not been such good friends for a long time, and we, we, we share cool common names of our kids together. It's always the first thing we talk about, and if we had all the time in the world, we'd chat about that today. But what does the audience need to know about you, Cameron? Well, um, first of all, great to have the opportunity to, to be here with you all today. Um, I'm an internist and hospice and palliative medicine physician, been working in this subspecialty of hospice and palliative medicine since last century, um, and did one of the earliest fellowships in hospice and palliative medicine again in the last century. Served on the board of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine for nearly a decade and was the president of the academy in 2007, um, and have had the opportunity through the role of the chief innovation officer with NPHI um, to really work with many, many programs across the country um, as well as in a number of different uh, new value-based care and payment models um, that we'll talk a little bit about today. At the ground level, um, when I was a kid, my grandmother and grandfather were smokers, and I rewrote their um, grocery list every every time I would visit with them, and I spent many summers with them as a kid, and I kept writing off uh, cigarettes as I rewrote the list. And despite those efforts, they actually quit smoking a number of summers in a row, but continued once I left. Um, and my grandmother died when I was 13 of lung cancer in a hospital in Virginia. And I just remember the phone call after we had gotten there to see her that evening, the phone call in the middle of the night when I was in the hotel room with my grandfather. And all I heard him just say was, oh, dear God. And that was how he found out that she had died. And that really, as I've reflected on choices professionally, um, really grounded me in this fact that, you know, dying alone in the hospital is not what my grandmother would have wanted. Um, and so my passion has been to try to transform the current fractured healthcare system into something that would have done a better job taking care of my grandmother. Wow. Well, Cameron, I didn't know that story about you, but I can see you living that cause and purpose. And I think that's why you and I just have feel like we have such common ground and um, probably a good segue. So I was thinking of calling our show today, the future of this, the future of serious illness continuum of care. So First off, Cameron, why should hospices innovate? Well, I'm going to be provocative here and start with a, a catchphrase, because if they don't, they will die. 
the reason for that, um, a bunch of different reasons, but I want to focus on, um, you know, Medicare and particularly Medicare Advantage. A lot of changes over the past numbers of years. The VBID value-based insurance design carbon um, uh, is one thing for the hospice benefit. But since Medicare's inception um, in the 80s, well, in the 60s, and it, it, was, it was implemented, but in the 70s and 80s, two benefits were carved out, the end-stage renal disease benefit and the hospice benefit. The ESRD benefit, as we're moving through Medicare Advantage and trying to get total cost of care and population health focuses, the ESRD benefits already basically been eliminated. Um, and thanks to some of our colleagues um, across the country, including Tom Kay and others, um, you know, the um, hospice carve-in is as a demo rather than actually just eliminated and carved in. Here's why this matters. Medicare Advantage, you might have been able to think of as a side issue um, until the past few years really growing rapidly. Here's some stats from 2022. 28 million people um, are enrolled in Medicare Advantage. That's 48% of the eligible population. But $427 billion, or 55% of total federal Medicare spending in net of premiums, is currently in Medicare Advantage. Why does this matter? All of this is indicating, if you look at CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicare Innovations, which I'll talk about a little bit more later. You look at Medicare Advantage, all are moving in the direction of value-based, value-based care and payment models. Um, value being defined as quality measured over cost measured. You have to be able to measure both to be able to demonstrate a high value organization. So underlying all of this, and this will be a theme I come back to a couple times, it's great data and analytics. But it's really looking at a population health approach, not just terminally ill. That's the tail end of the population's experience, whether it's heart failure, COPD, or cancer. We really have to look at that serious illness or advanced illness continuum. Good deal, Cameron. Wow. Well, so let's kind of segue from why they should to what's actually occurring. And, you know, we get to run with a lot of different great programs that are starting to lead the way in innovation. So what innovations are occurring? Maybe what service lines innovations are occurring? Just take it from there. Yeah. So I like to break this up into two sort of elements. One is sort of core um, and the core has two parts, and then we'll talk about sort of the, the newer options or the more advanced options, um, of which there are four. The two in the core, um, for, for all the folks that are listening to this podcast, I would assume the vast majority of you, hospice is your, your core core, and strengthening your horizontal is absolutely essential. A couple different strategies around that. A lot of programs have been working on expanded hospice therapies or open access um, with, with, that includes a bunch of different things, but must include excellent counseling support and services, highly competent nursing care. Um, we recently, through NPHI, lanced, launched an advanced cardiac uh, care program, which one of the CEOs uh, a few months later called a game changer. And I said, well, why is that a game changer? And this is really for their hospice, but also will bridge into another point about palliative. Is a game changer because they really focused on the clinical competencies around managing advanced cardiac care and really went from, forgive the slang, but a PO organization to an IV organization. And it's not it's much more complicated than that. But rather than just comfort in the home with a PO med, these programs are now doing LVADs and inotropes when appropriate in the advanced illness setting. And what happened that was the game changer, first of all, competence went up. 
But second of all, the cardiology practice said, wait a second, who are you all? You've been in our community for 40 years, but you are distinctively different. And they started referring many, many more patients to them because they saw them as a competent, high quality, helpful, community-based, home-based resource. So this was a real game changer for their hospice, strengthening their core. And then I'm strongly biased, and it's been a part of my entire career, which is bringing high-quality medical uh, oversight to the IDT, um, and, and that actually to the hospice IDT. Um, and that ultimately will tag back to a point I'll make a little bit later around providers and attribution, um, which fits with sort of the future of where things are going. The first step um, in kind of then um, the other part of the core, but strengthening the vertical, as I like to call it, um, is, is really um, palliative care um, and really thinking about how to do that as a bridge to the future and also as an earlier and easier access step. Um, it used to be that palliative care was for uh, generally hospital-based. CAPSI focused a ton on this uh, in their many early years. Um, and many, 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 many hospitals now across the US have hospital-based palliative care. That's great from the community-based continuum perspective. Horse is already out of the barn when they're hospitalized with that acute care illness. And that four days of length of stay for that acute referral that churns is, is just crushing. It's really, I think, proactive, preempt palliative care in the community, in the home, in facilities, nursing homes, and assisted livings, as well as office-based palliative care. We actually did work um, in my previous work um, with integrating outpatient palliative care into a community oncology practice. I was actually the provider working collaboratively with an NP in the oncology office. Over the course of about eight years, what we found was that our median length of stay, remember we're talking earlier, easier access to care and building out the continuum, our median, and if you remember your high school math classes, it's tough to move a median by an integer or two. Averages can be skewed, but a median. We moved our median cancer length of stay from 15 days to 24 days, a 47% increase in median length of stay. And it was by being present. I called it the Geraldo Rivera embedded with the troops, uh, kind of integrated into cancer care. And we changed the trajectory of care for those folks with advanced cancer. But we're still talking about a couple of months. These are the core, but the disruptors, Chris, they're starting upstream. Yeah, that's really good, Cameron. So so you mentioned, so that's the two core, so hospice and yeah. palliative care, but you mentioned the four. Did you want yeah. to go there about the four? Sure. Those are the innovations upstream. And, you know, you really look at the, you know, the comment a couple of our colleagues have made as people are innovating around us. Here's what they're doing. If we're not Another expression I love is, if if we're not at the table, then we're on the menu. Yeah. Um, and I think we all want to be at the table. So here are the four things that I'm going to focus on. They're a little bit um, uh, macro in terms of direction or vector. Home-based primary care, I think a lot of folks have been talking about that. Focus on health disparities and moving towards health equity. I'll talk a lot about that and some, some key opportunities there. I think the real key um, for the future is care coordination, number three, um, with an essential blend of in-person and virtual care. And this is one of the hardest things, I think, for our programs to really get their heads around because we've always been high-touch 
um, you know, in the hospice space. Um, but we've got to think about um, care coordination as, a, as an essential blend of in-person and virtual care. And then number four is really, I'm, I'm calling it a service line. We've got to have an analytics platform that measures and underpins all of this because you don't know if you're delivering value if you can't measure your quality and you don't know what your costs are. Um, and that's your value prop to anyone that you want to integrate with or be a part of in, in the relevance of the future. So with home, those are the four, um, Chris. So the, the first one, I'll dig a little bit deeper on home-based primary care. I'm immediately going to call it wraparound primary care slash palliative care, thinking more about the population rather than the reimbursement or the label. The population is a homebound or home limited might be more uh, broadly applicable um, patients as a population. And understanding who those are, uh, that population is, is super important. Um, again, data and analytics is critical to measuring that. You're talking about the costliest one to 10%, depending on which slice of the pie you wanna look at of the Medicare beneficiaries that are living home with multiple complex chronic conditions, um, and there's data and analytics to help us understand that, particularly around HCC scores and others, which I'm not going to go into. The two models that I might mention um, that I've had extensive experience with, one um, is the Program for All-Inclusive Care of the Elderly or the PACE program. A number of, of, of hospice and palliative care organizations are getting into PACE. It's a fantastic care model, I would say, one with, with only one caveat, um, and that is the tremendous capital expenditures around an outpatient uh, um, community center for a adult day center for the PACE program. And so a lot of folks have been talking about and thinking about and innovating around PACE without walls um, to get around the, uh, the, the adult day center. But the one that I've spent the most amount of time on in the past couple of years has been the CMMI, Medicare Innovations Direct Contracting, now called ACO Reach. And there's a lot that we could talk about there, but I want to really focus it on two things, which is pulling a thread through around provider oversight, and that has to do with um, attribution and total cost of care. You know, all of us, all of my physician colleagues that trained in what's now recognized for about 15 years as the medical subspecialty of hospice and palliative medicine have generally been trained as consultants. And the problem is if you're a consultant, you're an option. I always call that the wide receiver. You run your route, you may or may not get thrown to. The quarterback has taken all the snaps. They've got the attribution in medical language um, and they have the, both the responsibility and the liability then of total cost of care in these CMMI models. So I think we really need to seriously think about that, not only the population of homebound home limited, but about attribution and be moving from the wide receiver to the quarterback. So that's number one. Number two, we really need to address health disparities in this country and move towards health equity. Super important. Um, the, the one intervention that I've been a part of that I just think has been phenomenal is the integration of community health workers into um, an assessment in people's homes and knowing and connecting folks to resources in the community, particularly um, for underserved populations where the community health worker is of the same community as the underserved population and really looking at non-medical or social determinants of both health and cost. There's a lot of data, interestingly, on, on this on cost, but the two that we've had really significant impact on have been food insecurity and food deserts, um, working with organizations that provide um, food preparation and delivery services, including medically tailored meals. That turned out to be our number one SDOH need during the pandemic. The other that's received a lot of, of uh, popularity or publicity, particularly with Lyft, um, is transportation access, a big, big issue. A lot of folks just fundamentally 
are too sick to make it to the doctor's office, which, by the way, ties back to your home limit and homebound um, population. So there's a real opportunity to understand in a different way. And I really think as a physician, I love to emphasize this because it's the non-medical component. It's the team, true team, deep embedded in your community um, that really is what's necessary into the future. I think the most important, and this is a little bit provocative and especially thinking about the reality of today with staffing shortage is care coordination. And again, that essential blend of in-person and virtual care. And I'm gonna take you through a, a, a person in a second here as an example, because I think we need to make this real. But I really do think this most, must, might be the most essential population health strategy, driving high value care. And again, not 100% in-person, in too inefficient. All of my colleagues say they spend a third of their career you know, gripping the steering wheel and with windshield time. Um, and 100% virtual lacks the personal connection, engagement that's necessary. So I don't think we've defined it. We have to figure it out what that sweet spot in the, in the middle is. But it's, it's an essential blend of those two things. And again, I'm going to come back especially emphasizing this during staff shortages, incorporating televisits, telecounseling visits, as well as friendly checks. I love these data and this experience from Caremore. They actually had a social work leader who trained a bunch of volunteers, team, it's all about team, we know this, trained a bunch of volunteers to make what they called friendly calls and basically connect person to person. No initials needed after your name, person to person. What they found with this friendly engagement was a 17% reduction in hospitalizations. It wasn't just wow. because of the friendly calls. It was because those calls led to engagement. I'm going to call you again, and I'm going to escalate if I need to as the volunteer um, up to you know, a clinician to address clinical issues. Um, but you're really – we're doubling down and really – um, thinking outside the box on that hospice learning that we have from the hospice IDT. Whoever would have thought that an insurance company would be driving an innovation with volunteers that led to a 17% reduction in hospitalizations? I just love it. So let's look at. Sounds like the spirit of hospice. There, that that what that that is the spirit. You know it, Chris. And we gotta we gotta strengthen that foundation and then pull it forward um, to make yep. sure that it's a part. But we can't just be saying you know more hospice. That's not going to be enough. So let's look at someone with heart failure, typically um, terminally ill, quote unquote, with a prognosis of, uh, with an EF of 20% or less, has a prognosis statistically of around three years. So, so how could we um, create a care coordination framework for someone? Let's look at Ms. Valentine, uh, name changed, hopefully understandably, as I'm focusing on heart failure, Ms. Valentine. Um, her cardiologist, here's the scenario that might be beautiful. Her cardiologist asks an NPHI member program called Heart Caring, myth mythical uh, entity, to help support Ms. Valentine in all ways at home, parentheses, care coordination, after her initial cardiac event and diagnosis of CHF. That care coordination would provide education, cardiac rehab, nutritional counseling, transportation to PT, symptom management, advanced care planning towards an order set measured from we've initiated the conversation to we've got a power of attorney, we've got a surrogate, but we've actually got an order set, actually like the Domino's pizza delivery app, so you know where you're measuring your progress towards completion and then revisiting, of course, of advanced care planning. Well, number two, heart-caring clinical resources are available to Ms. Valentine 24-7 with provider oversight, real care coordination with provider oversight. You got telehealth services provided for friendly checks by volunteers escalating up as appropriate. 
clinical care coordination, medical oversight. Then you go to home-based care and coordination services provided that would be consistent with a wraparound primary slash palliative care. You're now also driving towards the preponderance of care in the home limited setting um, being provided by this care coordination team with provider oversight. That tags you to attribution, which gets you into the CMMI and MA potential um, opportunities. And then two years later, um, she's homebound with significant frailty, and we've been measuring the frailty because it turns out that the international classification of function and the frailty indices and others actually are reasonably well correlated with prognosis, certainly more regulatorily supported than clinical judgment, and I'm a physician saying that. Um, but you work on frailty that's measured and tracked, that tags with increased resources provided to support you as your, as your function declines um, and you need more support in the home. Um, so you, you're thought to have, a, she's, Ms. V is thought to have a prognosis of months. So the care coordination team asks for additional support from the hospice team for visits, but they continue to do the care coordination at a significantly higher ratio, we're not necessarily using caseload here, we're doing care coordination ratios, um, with the hospice team visiting to support the increased personal care counseling needs of the patient and family. She dies comfortably at home, note, avoids a bunch of hospitalizations with her family around and bereavement continues for her loved ones. And then lastly, we've figured all this out by measurement and analytics platforms that underpins all of this to create that seamless care coordination uh, trajectory that loves on Ms. Valentine from diagnosis through to death and supports her family after her death. Hmm, I love that, Cameron. I'm, that, I'm thinking like that progressive commercial where it just went, Phew. I mean, there's so many cool little, if we had an hour um, to a bunch of different trails, we could go on that. But that I think that ties it beautifully together. So Cameron, what final thoughts do you have? Well, two things. One, uh, this could be completely overwhelming for many. So I suggest three possible paths and then final thoughts. One is hospices either need to build out this advanced illness or serious illness continuum themselves. It's a lot. Number two, partner with another program that's aligned in mission and goal that's significantly farther along this path to be part of a larger advanced illness organization or effort. That's a pretty good strategy. And then ultimately, potentially, um, not necessarily the biggest fan of this, but it is important. If you can't build it all or partner with it all, integrate or subcontract into a larger entity like an ACO health system or health plan. Health plan. My final thoughts, Chris, are these are scary and uncertain, yet exciting times in healthcare. I would encourage all of you to stay focused on your mission and the beneficiaries, the root of that word is benefido, Latin to do good, that you set out to serve and for which you took your oath as a healthcare professional, I would encourage you to lead with your heart and serve boldly. Wow. Kevin, when I was listening to you, I was reminded, Dr. Bull, good friend of both you and I, years ago, we did a presentation and Janet taught me sometimes you pick the title and then you do the research. And this is one of those where I felt like we were kind of dumb lucky and we titled it Sustaining Innovations and Disruptive Innovations. And the background was, the bell-shaped curve, which you know I like, like organizations are on this life cycle. And if your core business is on the right side of the curve, you've got to be thinking about new innovations. Sustaining innovations is improving what is. Disruptive is what possibly could be new. And it's interesting, and I think about we did this, it was many years back here, probably 10 years, 
the um, prescription we wrote was three-part sustaining, two-part disruptive. I think now where we are, it's probably either even or a little bit more on the disruptive side. Um, and so a bit of both. It just You've just brought that whole kind of presentation back as I was listening to you. I well, love one it, thing Chris. I and you're such a innovative guy, but always what I love about you is you've got the heart in the head. And so I wanted to ask you this when I've started asking our um, recent guests, but what book are you reading? Oh gosh, Chris. I'm, um, so I'm current, I'll tell you, I'm reading one book and I'm rereading another um, uh, that may be ADD, but the current book I'm reading is 4,000 weeks. Um, one of our colleagues recommended it. It's time management for mortals. And if you get it, the average human lifespan is absurdly and insultingly, the book cover says, brief. Assuming you live to be 80, you have just over 4,000 weeks. So it's around time management. Uh, but the one that I'm rereading was actually given to me by my father-in-law. Um, and it's called First You Have to Row a Little Boat. Might be... Um, mundane for some, uh, but I grew up uh, in and around the waters of Lake Erie and, and sailing. And this talks about how first you have to row a little boat as he has his dream to ultimately get his big blue suit, big blue sloop or sailboat. And here's the quote that, um, Chris, I, I, I wanted to share with you all. I thought just for me, terrific. It, it may well be, as I think about it, that the prime virtue of my blue sloop was that it compelled me to live in the present and to avoid too much unhealthy speculation about what might happen at some indefinite point ahead, which I couldn't plainly see. For the truth is that I already know as much about my fate as I need to know. The day will come when I will die. So the only matter of consequence before me is what I will do with my allotted time. I can remain on shore paralyzed with fear, or I can raise my sails and dip and soar in the breeze. So I raise my sails and dip and soar as often as I can. Wow. And I think that's a good call to all of us, especially those of us in hospice and palliative care today. Well, Cameron, thank you. You're a wealth of knowledge. But again, what I love about you is not just your intellect and your head. You also have a great heart for this work. And um, thank you for that, because that's not exactly a, that that is a gift. That's part of your gift to the world. Well, I'm going to leave our listeners, as I always do, with a bookend of the podcast, which is a quote. And I actually had Cameron pick Um, He actually gave me three, but I picked this one. It's those who disrupt their industries, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and transform lives. That's by Heather Simmons. Thanks for listening to TCN Talks.